honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. At the facility I run, we, we use fitness on a daily basis. You can't argue with the evidence about how exercise helps with depression, it helps with anxiety, it helps people in recovery, it helps people who are dealing with addiction in their daily basis. So much of addiction is not just about the environment that the person is in, but about any neurological dysfunction that's going on. And it's important that we know this because neurological dysfunction um, can be supported by a healthy diet and good exercise. Now we know this. This is not a surprise to anyone. Like, uh, don't smoke signs that, are, that kids start to see when they're in elementary school all the way up through high school, signs that say don't smoke are on the hallways and they see them every day. And we hear every day about how fitness is beneficial. But that doesn't help parents. It doesn't help parents when we are in the middle of watching our child in crisis, um, not be able to get out of bed. It doesn't help when your teen hasn't taken a shower in three days to say to them, hey, if you would just go to the gym, you'd feel better. They know that. They've been told that since the beginning of time. The questions then become, have you modeled it as a parent? Are you modeled true body health? Have you used fitness to overcome the stuff that you've had to overcome so that your kids can actually see that? We use fitness every day in our facility. We rest one of the days a week, but every other day, we are out there, they're hiking, they're doing at the climbing gym, they're doing martial arts, uh, they're weightlifting. You can't argue with how important it is. But what I want to do is I want you to hear from a guy who I got to meet at the Winter Symposium. And you can, you can listen to Dan's shorter podcasts about uh, himself, his story, and the corporation he works with, The Phoenix. Uh, the Phoenix is a great program. But I want you to hear Dan's story. As a parent, I want you to grasp how Dan used movement 
to help guide him back on his journey. And this guy went dark, but I'm going to let Dan tell his story. This is one of those storytelling podcasts where I really want you to hear, no matter how far down you go, and you end up in jails, institutions, and facing death, there's a path back. And I want you to hear how Dan found his. Welcome to this week's show. My guest is Dan Huggill, and uh, welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Dan, thank you very much for being on the show, brother. Hey, right on, Aaron. Hey, thank you for having me, man. Cool. So I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Dan Hugel. I'm a recovering alcoholic meth addict. Um, I first started using, I was in high school, you know, like I was really athletic growing up. I played soccer. I played football, baseball, a little bit of roller hockey, did a little bit of martial arts training stuff. And, uh, you know, around my, right before my freshman year in high school, you know, like, like I was kind of socially awkward. I started drinking because alcohol, liquid courage, you know. So I started drinking quite a bit. You know, it helped me kind of socialize. I went to Coronado High School and my dad was actually a teacher there. So like it was kind of hard. I'd be hiding that I was drinking. Uh, when I was 14, me and my buddies, we actually made me a fake ID. Uh, so in, we went to this liquor store on Fillmore Street down here in Colorado Springs and they ID'd me twice. And so I would buy liquor for everybody. So it made it super easily accessible. And um, so I had a lot of, I mean, I had a lot of fun. I was running cross country a little bit at the time and I stopped doing that. I kind of started going into football and I stopped doing that. I started training at a place with this VR niche jujitsu and a little bit of Muay Thai stuff. But this is when I really started drinking a lot. And it like the people that I was with in high school, you know, we'd go to our keggers and stuff. But for me personally, it got a little bit farther. It got to the point where like, I'd be like, hey, because we were allowed to leave the campus for our lunch break at school, you know, so I was like, hey, man, we need to go to the liquor store. So I found I was drinking every single day. Like my parents had this bottle of rum in their cupboard, you know, and in like I'd chug it before school and I'd pour water back into it. It was a big bottle. I'd pour water back into it, you know, just to make sure that it was at the right level. And then after I got like almost done with this watered down nasty bottle of rum and I finally came clean to my mom later, she was like, we had rum. And so that was kind of funny. There's this one day I was at school, like I kind of became a bonehead knucklehead. I like, I was kind of aggressive. We like to fight a lot, you know, and uh, we were at school and one of my buddies I was with, we almost got into it with these couple of dudes. And, uh, you know, we were just kind of clowning them and it was almost this whole big ordeal, a whole bunch of people showed up. And uh, so I was like, all right, you know, nothing happened of it. The sc- like the, the school cop came and he, he like broke everything up. And so then I, and I was drinking like, like we drank, like, I don't even know what we drank that day, but this is like, that was at lunch and this was right after school. And like, I had like weightlifting class and then I, I was a mess. I was in there like trying to squat three, 400 pounds, all drunk. But back to this story. So I get a call, I get a page because I had a pager back then. This was like 2002, I think. And uh, it was from the school. It was like, you need to come in and talk to us about what happened. Because like they were going to suspend me and my buddy and they wanted to know what was going on. And I'm with my other homeboy and I'm just like, hey, dude, like I am super drunk. What do I do? I got to go in here and talk to him. And he's like, dude, this will sober you right up. This is the first time I tried meth. He cut me out this really big line of this like, crazy lithium stuff it burned i snorted it and it made me feel sober so i go back into the school and in my mind like i can think clearly now but in all actuality i probably reeked like alcohol and was talking about a hundred miles an hour and so like and this was hard for me because then they told my dad after they were like we know he was drinking we don't know what he was on so uh 
I had some difficulty with high school. I got really bad. And this is when I started using meth. The first drug I actually did was ecstasy. I don't know why, because I was like, oh, it's not cocaine. I'd never heard of it. I thought it was okay. And then kind of in my mind, like that was my gateway drug. So, uh, but, but meth was the thing I liked. I liked the feeling that you got from it. Like, and I liked to drink. So I, get, I, could, I could drink and, and get a good buzz. And then I could sober up, you know, and, and I liked the kind of cycle that it went through. So, uh, and it, it affected me. Like, I don't know, I'd be in weightlifting class. I'd be drinking, I'd be high. And, and I, I thought that I hit it pretty well. Um, I ended up my junior year of high school. I was drinking in my history class. And the teacher, like I was in this band, it was called the Commie Bots. It was a joke on communist robots. We had a song called like Soviet Reunion. It was just a joke. But like the stuff I draw on my paper, she got mad at me. She's like, why are you drawing this communist stuff on your paper? And I was all like, it's a band. And so she got all mad at me. But the way I reacted when I was drinking is I picked up a desk and I threw it. And security walked me off campus. My dad, my poor dad, bless his heart, had to deal with all this. So I ended up leaving school my junior year. My senior year, uh, I didn't go to school for the rest of my junior year. I was just drinking and doing whatever with the drugs. And then I went back to an alternative school the next year for my senior year. And I got all my credits and I passed and I graduated. But, uh, and here's the point where everything started to get really crazy because I was drinking a lot more. I decided that I really liked meth and the way that I supported my habit was I started selling it. So uh, like when I was about, I was 18, 18, 19, Got a job selling it. I got a job as a bouncer when I was 19, and it made it really easy. I got to work at a bar. I'd get to drink a little bit. I'd drink in the parking lot. Uh, I was actually head of security when I was 19 at a place called Thunder and Buttons in Colorado Springs. So I was working out of there, and when you're working the door, it makes it really easy to sell drugs. So, uh, And it's almost like I had the job as a cover-up because like, I started selling more and more and more. And so uh, like, fast forward in a little bit, I... Uh, Started working with some pretty crazier, like kind of like cartelish, kind of like like gang kind of stuff. I won't really talk a whole lot about them just because I'd rather leave that out of it, you know. Um, but I was working with them. I was doing some crazy stuff. Uh, they called me Crazy Dan in high school. And then after that, they started calling me Doorman Dan. And a lot of people still do that to this day because I was a bouncer for about 10 years. And I'll get a little bit more into the rest of that part in a second. But um, so I was a bouncer. I ended up going to a place called Rowdies and Bouncing. It was pretty cool. And then I started bouncing at Union Station. And this is where I went for the, I was bouncing for the most of it. Uh, actually now, at this day, I'm a bouncer there again and I am sober and I do security and I'm clear-minded. I'll get into that in a little bit too. But um, so the most enabling job in the world is working security at a bar. I was doing a lot of illegitimate repossessions and stuff. Like they called me Doorman Dan for two reasons, because I worked the door. And also like when I showed up, I was the dude that was coming for you to kick your door in. Uh, I did a lot of crazy stuff like that, got really bad, drinking nonstop, and then well, this was about six years ago, fast forward in a little bit through all that, I, uh, I started using IV, I started shooting up, and um, like a couple of my buddies, like, like they knew about it, but they were like, when, like two of them, we were at this party, we all hadn't seen each other in a few years, and they walk in, and I got this, and I'm not even caring, and they're both looking at me, and they're just like, man, seeing it, it's different, Dan. Like, you can't get any higher than that. And I was like, yeah, whatever, you know. So I, I really, like, I was into that. I was, I was kicking it with a lot of, like, you know, like, white white gang members, a lot of, like, just stuff like that. Um, and we, uh, uh, like, so this is the part where everything went downhill. I went to a rehab at Parker Valley Hope. And, uh, and, and my, my counselor, Robert Jocelyn, he had me draw out this timeline. It was part of one of my treatment things. And uh, it was like, when you started using over here, 
And then down over here, like with your methods of using, when I started using IV like intravenously, it's like got evicted from my apartment, started getting charges. Like I got really sloppy with it because like, I mean, you can be, I guess, a good functioning drug dealer, I guess, if you want to call it that. I mean, but it only lasts for so long. When you start using IV and you're a drunk, you start getting really sloppy. So I got sloppy. I got greedy. I started selling to anybody and everybody. I was reckless. I was going around. I kind of liked the whole big shot mentality that came with it. I kind of liked the whole, like the status of being feared. Like, like I was like, it was, it was looking back at it. It was stupid, but, uh, but I enjoyed it. Like I liked that lifestyle. And so, uh, I thought I was untouchable at this point, you know? And, um, so I remember, okay, this one time, this is the first time I got, this is my first charge that I got. I, uh, this was oh, 2011, 2012. Um, there were these people that I've been selling to for a few years and apparently they had got in trouble because they were, they, 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 they basically got me in trouble. They set me up. Uh, they called me this one day and they were like, Hey Dan, uh, there's this guy that needs to pick up some stuff, but he picks up a lot more than what we usually get. We're talking about meth. They're like, he, he wants more meth than we want to get. Can we just give him your number? And I was like, yeah, sure. That's fine. Turns out it was detective Kenneth Owens. I had three controlled buys with him and I didn't even know it. I was on my way. The way they got me, I was on my way to the movies with my ex-girlfriend and I had just run out of, out of my drugs. And so I called one of my buddies that I sell with. I'm like, Hey man, I ran out. Can I come by and get a little bit from you? here's where it gets kind of hectic. Turns out his girlfriend was also working with the cops. And when I was going to meet him, she was like, Dan, I need you to park here. I need you to park here. I was like, no, I'm parked here. I'm fine. I'm coming in. So, uh, I go in there and I just get a little bit of whatever I get like, like, uh, uh, like, uh, we call it a 16th, a teener from her 1.75, whatever, get that from her. And I go back in the car and then shoot, they come swooping in on me, Mr. Hugo, get on the ground. And my girlfriend, my ex, she doesn't know what's going on. And uh, I was like, what do you guys want? And they're like, we got a warrant for your arrest. I'm like, how do you have a warrant for my arrest? And they're like, I was like, what's the warrant for? They're like, dangerous drugs. I was like, is that even a thing? Like, <laughs> so I didn't even know. I was like, dangerous drugs. I don't think that's a charge. What it, it turns out I had, had three controlled buys with Detective Kenneth Owen. So there was three counts of felony three at the time. Now it's drug felonies, which are lesser. Three counts of felony three distribution manufacturing a schedule two controlled substance. And they also got me with possession because I had it on me and I had a scale and I had baggies. So like, I mean, they, they got me. And so they took me to jail. And uh, this is one thing I wanted to kind of say that like, if any parents are dealing with this, if you have a child that goes to jail and maybe we can get into this a little bit more, but like if you have one, if, if they're, you're really struggling with them, this is one way that you cannot enable them. Let them stay in jail for a, a week or two to detox. Let them. Because like I got bonded out seven times and it would have probably been a lot less drastic, everything that happened to me. And, it, and it's going to be hard. They're going to call you crying. They're going to call you wanting to get out of jail. They're going to be saying some victim stuff like, oh, they're beating me. They're not feeding me good. The people in here are intimidating. They're going to say whatever they can to get out of there. Let them stay in there for a week or two. They need to detox. So I'm going to get into that part because this is what happened with me. I called my parents and I was like, well, I don't know what happened. I had some stupid excuse like, oh, like, uh, they just got me with this and I don't know what happened. This is a mistake. You know, I was just making up whatever I could. And so they, okay, my, my bond was $51,000. But with a bondsman, they ended up getting me out for about $1,200. And like my parents, like we don't have a lot of money. We, we, we aren't super well off like, like my family. Like, so they bond me out and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll never do it again. Thank you so much. This and that. And then uh, 
I get put on probation. And uh, like, like, like they end up dropping, they gave me a plea bargain. I took a, a plea. They dropped everything except they just made it one count of distribution manufacturing, a felony three. They gave me two years probation, whatever, cool. And so at this point, they're like, the, my PO is like, you have to be sober. You can't drink or do anything like that. I'm like, excuse me? Not drinking? not doing drugs. So like, I almost thought about trying to quit. And I was like, no, there's got to be a way around this. And my mind, the way my mind worked is there's a way around everything. And uh, you can only go so far before you get caught. Once you're in the system, you're stuck until you change your ways. Otherwise, it's just going to get worse. So I found out a clever way to fake my UAs. I'm not going to actually go into detail on that because I think that, that that information just needs to die. Nobody needs to know about that. So I was faking them for a year and a half. And um, during this year and a half, my PO and the people I was doing my therapy with, they were like, uh, after I ended up talking to them later, they were like, Dan, we knew you were high and we don't know how you were passing your UAs. And I actually did get clean with them about it. And when they actually, I got sentenced, they, they used that against me. They were like, oh, we found this out. And I was like, no, I got honest with you guys, but I'll get into that more in a second. So um, while I'm out on probation this time, I like... I'm still drinking. I'm finding my way to, you know, to hide that. And the, the way that I found out that you, like, like I, I tried this one way because I heard that it masked everything in your drug test. In this particular method, I did this and it masked the methamphetamines, but not the alcohol. So I had four UAs that were hot for alcohol. I go in to see my PO, like nothing's wrong. And she's like, Dan Hugo, she flips out. She's yelling at me. She grabs this breathalyzer and all but jams it into my mouth and says, blow. And I blow zeros and I was like, I'm so lucky because one time I actually did go to court and I blew numbers and, and usually you could get in a lot of trouble for that, but they let me go that time. So, uh, yeah, it's so like I have these excuses like, oh, cough syrup, this and that. And this is why a lot of POs are sometimes kind of mean and callous is because they hear this stuff a lot and a lot of people are making stuff up to get out of trouble. So, yeah, so but it, like it, being honest with them is actually a very helpful thing, come to find out. <laughs> Dan, let me stop you there for a second because like I'm, I, know, I know parents are listening to this story. I'm listening to it. I'm exhausted just listening to it. Like, like the hectic life, the insanity. Oh, yeah. The, 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 just the, the craziness of everything that you were doing, how much effort, time, uh, hard work you did so that you could continue to use despite everything. There's a level of functional addiction right? You had the perfect job that allowed you to, uh, uh, to continue using. I was a pizza delivery guy. That was my dealer job, right? Yep. I had, I had hit the door, ring the doorbell. I don't, sorry, dude, I don't have money for a tip. That's all right. You want to buy a bag and suddenly $20 and ones appears, right? You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, you find a way to use, you find a way to continue the sickness. And you said something uh, that I think is deeply, deeply profound. I almost thought about trying to quit. Like, like, dude, that's what I'm going to name this show because you spend how many years since, since you started? You, you're talking about uh, being back at, as a junior in high school when you started, the first time you used meth. What year was that? That was, I want to say 2002, 2001, 2002. So for 10 years? You were using meth? Uh, yeah, my, my, yeah, I started, uh, I drank for 14 years and I used meth, I think for about 12 years. My sobriety date is July 23rd, 2014. 
meth has a meth has a you know, first of all, I say don't use it once uh, because, because and neurologically we know that it can burn uh, receptors and neurotransmitters, especially ones that create dopamine and stuff. So people who come out of meth addiction tend to have a lot of uh, uh, depressive uh, symptoms because they've burned out, not, not damaged, burnt like it's done, it's done and gone. The ability to produce dopamine, which essentially makes you feel happy, right? Heroin addicts, they, they damage it, but they can repair it. They say with meth, done deal. Um, you've been sober now for a little while. You're working with people, you're working with young men and women in sobriety. You're part of an incredible community. The Phoenix is an amazing community. Are you happy? I'm very happy. I'm fired up, Aaron. Like, like, I'm great, man. I'm great. So the other thing that you don't seem to have is when, when, and, and if there's, if there's something you've done to counter this, talk about it. But when you picture someone who's been addicted to the meth, uh, they're very underweight. They haven't been eating well. Their teeth are really messed up. Uh, there's a lot of scabs and scars. Did you, in, in the depths of your addiction, were you showing signs of meth addiction? Because it sounds like not only did you hide your use from the cops and the courts and the probation officers, but looking at you right now, no one say, oh yeah, he looks like a former meth addict. Dude, you're built like a tank. So <laughs> what, what's, what happened with that? I mean, was, was your recovery part of, of getting back to, to full body weight and full press weight? Or were you able to maintain? And what did you do during, during his time to, to keep the costume up, man? Um, well, what I had done, and probably one of the reasons that, like, this is, I'm not saying it's good, but I think it was because I drank so much, um, and I couldn't stay up, but also at the same time, I was using so much meth on, on a crazy, on a, on a heavy day, I was shooting up between three and a half to, like, maybe a few times, like, seven grams a day. I was doing, in a day, what most people do in a week or two or a month, like, like, cause I just had so much of it, you know? And, and like, I love the high so much, but at the same time, like, I, I think it was because I was, it was like a cigarette to me at that point. It, like, and I ate, I slept. Um, the most I ever stayed up, like you'll hear about people on meth staying up for weeks. The longest I ever managed to stay up was about three days. And it was crazy. Like my mind, like I, I could not handle it. I drink and, and alcohol was like the counteract for that, the counteracting thing for that. But I ate and I slept. And I mean, I know that there were some times, especially that you could definitely tell I was on it, but I, I was about like, uh, for the most part, I was 250 pounds. I was very deconditioned, but uh, I was about 250 pounds, um, 240, 250 during my meth usage. Like, and I, I wish I had a picture I could send you. I could probably send you one after. Yeah. Uh, what is what was rock bottom? What did rock bottom look like for you? Rock bottom for me. This is where. Okay, yeah. Okay, so right about this point is when uh, I started catching more felony charges. Um, me and my friends were on the news for an armed robbery. I was out on. This was between 2012 and 2014 while I was on probation. This was my rock bottom. I was out on about seven bonds, and then in the middle of 2014, I was living in a trap house and I was just running stuff there and. Um, I, uh, my PO was all like, Dan, I need you to come in and see me. We are taking you into custody until you get sentenced because you keep getting more charges. And so they set a court date for me. I didn't show up for that court date and I went on the run.
this is where it gets very sobering for me because like I said, I played a lot of sports in high school. I, I was a weightlifter. Like when I was a junior, I was benching like 380. You know, like I was doing, like I was great. Like I loved it. This, and I was running cross country, like I said. The sobering moment is uh, I was at my ex's house. I woke up and, I, and like I'd wake up shaky. I'd have to drink to lose the shakes to be able to steady my hand to be able to, to hit my vein. And so I get a call from my parents. They're like, uh, okay, I have, I have three pit bulls now. I had two then. Their names are Tova and Hammer. And uh, so they're like, Tova and Hammer are missing. We can't find them. Uh, and, and so this is the perfect setup right here for me because I love my dogs. And I was just, I was lucky that like my parents were letting them stay there for me. So I go over there and I get dropped off down the alley and I'm walking up and it's like, this is July 23rd. This is like a 90 degree day. And like, I'm wearing a leather jacket, steel toe boots. I had long hair at the time. And I'm already sweaty because of all of everything I'm on. I walk up the alley. I'm like, Tova Hammer, where you at? And I'm looking for him. So I go up and I go through the back door of my parents' house and I open up the door and I walk in and here's Will and Steven, uh, you know, the, uh, they're bounty hunters. <laughs> they set me up. And uh, I was like, oh no. So I turn around after yelling a few profane words. I ran, I hopped over the fence and I started running down the alley. Like I said a second ago, that sobering moment, this was the sobering moment. As soon as I got down to the bottom of the alley and I realized how deconditioned I was now, because like, like I said, I like to fight a little bit, a lot, you know, like I was, like I was a brawler, but like a brawl doesn't require like, you're not going three minute rounds in a brawl. You know what I'm saying? So there's no, there's no stamina involved. And I got to the bottom of the alley and Steven's gaining on me. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to get away from this dude. I got to pull something crazy. So I tried to pull this little juke move and I, I tried to run over there. These rocks, they were cemented really bad. It was like a mess at the bottom of the alley, like the neighbors had. So I tried to hop on one rock and I'm going to jump the fence in my mind. And it's going to look perfectly 10 point landing. Did not go that way. I ended up tripping, steel toe boot falling and hitting these rocks really hard. They had to sew my hand back together. Like, like, like it, it tore it like on my palm almost completely off. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, and, it, and it tore, I had a praying mantis tattoo on my forearm and you couldn't even tell what it was. And I hit the ground and then Steven, he, the, the bounty hunter, he comes up behind me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he's like, Dan, don't fight back, man. Don't fight back. And I look up and I'm like, do you think I'm dumb? You think I'm going to fight the police? And I look up at him and I'm like, Steven? And it turns out he was actually one of the regulars. He used to go to the bar. I used to bounce at for the rap shows. And I was just like, what are you doing? He's like, man, I'm glad. He's like, I've seen you fight before. I don't want, I don't want, I'm glad you're not fighting me. I was like, no, dude, we're good. So I'm leaking blood everywhere. And they come in and get me in the back of the cop car. The EMTs, they come in, they check me out. And they're like, he's good, whatever. And so Will puts me in the back of his car, lets me smoke a last cigarette. And he takes me down to the county jail in Colorado Springs. It's a CJC, El Paso County Criminal Justice Center. So we get down there and they're taking everything and I'm bleeding and beat up. And we look at my hand and we finally realize how bad it is. And he's like, whoa, you need to go to the hospital. So we get me up to the hospital and, you know, they sew me back up and my ex comes in and my ex is like, uh, she was like doing the same stuff I was. And she's like, you need to go to rehab. I was like, you know, I do need to go to rehab. And uh, this was my rock bottom. This was when everything crashed down on me. They had got me. This is when they got me. I already had known I was going to be doing prison time. And, and it's, one of the, it's one of the worst things in the world being on the run from the law because you can't do anything. You can't get a job. You're constantly looking over your shoulder. If you're the paranoid type and if you're on meth, odds are you're probably pretty paranoid. It just makes your life hell. You stay in hotels. You're looking over your shoulder. It sucks. You know, everybody. Yeah, so, uh, when, I, that's when they got me. 
everybody when they come out of uh, their rock bottom experience and they take a look back at their life, <clears throat> the first thing that I recognize is that everybody looks at their story and they say, did anybody else's story get that bad? Was my story the worst story? And I remember being in a Perkins at 3 a.m. with my sponsor, telling him my fourth step, just going through everything I, that I, you know, my total inventory, everything that I'd done, that person that I don't know if they're okay anymore, the kid that I, uh, you know, uh, sent to jail, but I was his dealer, you know, all kinds of stuff, just the stuff you really hate about yourself. And I was just sobbing at the table and everything. And the guy reached across the table and he said, uh, I killed my grandmother as I was robbing her house so that I could buy meth. And I served 12 years in prison for that. Did you have a moment where when you tell your story that you realize that your story is in perspective compared to some of the other things that, that our brother and sister addicts have been through? I mean, is your, you got one of the worst stories that you know of, or have you found yourself going, holy crap, like someone's been worse off than me and made it back. If they can do it, I can do it. Um, mine's pretty bad. And I do have, I do have that. If they can do it, I can do a thing. I do know some people and I've worked, I try to help some people, uh, that do have some stories that are, I, I feel worse than mine. Uh, but, and, you know, and it's like, you know, like they say, like, like it's every, we all have the same story, just different details kind of. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I do feel mine's pretty bad. Um, the way I see it is just a lot of the people like and I run into people that I haven't seen since I was using and a lot of those like the people that I know now and surround myself with, they don't know how I used to be as much. And so when I get like some of these people that come back and they find their way to recovery, they like they're just like, they can't believe it's me. And so that feels great. Yeah, you know, we have that experience often where we'll get a phone call from a kid or a visit from a kid. And we're like, Wow, you're alive? That's awesome. Yeah. What, you're in college? You, you, you just graduated from the military? Like, what is going on here? Do you, did you find it hard to get out of that playground? You know, obviously you were allergic to strawberries. When you were going through recovery, did you stay out of the strawberry patch? Or did you keep I trying to bring those friends forward with you? Um, well, you see, well, what had happened was, is, is I had like a, a, like a come to Jesus moment and like my faith doesn't have to be anybody else's faith, but like I was raised like Christian and I, and I went a little bit si like with it for a minute. Like I kind of got really into my Nordic heritage too and followed that for a while. And, uh, but, but like, like I was in the County jail after this and I was reading Psalm 18 and it brought me back. Like it brought me back and it was just like God slapping me in the face. And I was just like, Oh, and that's when I kind of was like, I can't do this anymore. I have to change. And then in my mind, it's like, like, like I think that that's when the, the, everything switched. Like I never, I never had a relapse. I never had it. But also during my early recovery, um, I, uh, I was in CJC with a $96,000 bond, the county jail. And um, my grandma, we got a, one of my well, Sereno friends. He got me a really good bondsman. They bonded me out and I went to Parker Valley Hope. And that's what I was talking about earlier with Robert when he had me draw out that timeline. And so I went there. And, and then uh, December 15th, 2014, I ended up getting sentenced to 12 years in prison for everything. So in like, I know right now it's 2019, that's not 12 years. So what happened with that is like, this is where the, the fitness piece really comes back for me too. Because uh, when I was in rehab, I started working out, they had gym time and I was like trying to get back into it. And it came back kind of started to come back. And then um, I got to prison and uh, my celly was the shot caller for the white boys right when I got in there. He was the, for, for like, he, he was in charge of that side of the yard for the white, the white guys. And so it was cool. And I walk, walk in and, and so 
like he showed me the ropes and like I never clicked up with anybody like I didn't do anything like that I stayed really independent I just did my thing but like I hung, hung out with a little bit of everybody I mean there's stupid prison politics and I just stayed out of that but uh I got really into working out he was like well you want to work out I was like yeah I ended up doing this thing where I'd work out with them. We'd do 100 burpees every day. And this is when I got into CrossFit in there. But my buddy in there, he went by New York. He was like, hey, you know about CrossFit? I was like, I've heard about it. Like, let's do it. He's like, it's perfect for in here because we don't have freeways. We can do gymnastic Metcon workouts, like cardio and gymnastic push-up, pull-up, burpee. So um, I started every day. We got into a really hardcore routine, and I stuck with it. Um, when I got sentenced, the judge, he said, Mr. Hugel, I'll leave your sentence open for reconsideration. And after a year and a half, I did uh, victim impact. I did uh, addiction treatment therapy, phase one, phase two. I got really involved with the church stuff in there. I had like 32 certificates for things that I had accomplished in a year and a half. And when I came back for the reconsideration, this is where like, this is where it got crazy. Like if people ask an AA, like, where does God come into all this? They like, like it's a thing. And this is where I, in my, I believe he really showed up for me because in, this was uh, March 7th, 2016, they brought me back on a writ, you know? And I was like, cool, they're going to do my reconsideration. And I get back here and I talk to my attorney and he's like, why are you back? Did you get more charges? I was like, no. So I was like confused and going out of prison, being really comfortable because prison sucks. You get comfortable. It's better than the county, but you get comfortable there, you know, and then when you get moved, well, odds are you're not moving back where you were. So you got to get, it's just constantly having to readjust in there and it sucks. And so I get back here and I don't know what's going on. I, so they're like, he's like, while you're here, let's see if we can do your reconsideration. And all those certificates and everything I did didn't matter. What mattered is I had a case manager at Bent County, Colorado or Bent County, uh, um, correctional facility, uh, 90 miles east of Pueblo. And I had a very, she was a very difficult woman. Most people that would go down to see her, she'd push their buttons and she'd get them all fired up, hot headed. You know how prison guys can be. And so she'd kick them out and they'd have to have a, a, a guard escort them down to see her because she was notorious for pushing people's buttons. She tried to do that with me and I was just like, yeah, whatever, whatever you need me to do. Cool. Like I didn't give her any crap. I was super cool with her. And she wrote me a letter that actually they gave me the reconsideration they released me after a year and a half on a 12-year sentence and they put me into a specialty drug court program on a zero tolerance thing uh and then i got out april 27th 2016 into uh it's called heels court in colorado springs it's healthy engaged and living sober it's a two-year program and i passed it and it was great and uh, that's actually what brought me to the Phoenix is like I said, I started doing CrossFit in there. I had community service to do. My buddy TJ, he's the Denver, Denver chapter climbing instructor. He was like, hey man, they do CrossFit for free at the Phoenix. You're sober, come check it out. So I went in and I started doing CrossFit. I was there Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every time I did it for months. And uh, that's, uh, that's, and then like I was working at a treatment center. I was trying to get my certification to be an addictions counselor uh, because of my felonies. They wouldn't let me do it. They wouldn't let me register to become a psychotherapist. And uh, I'm actually off paper next month. So I'm going to reapply. I know that's kind of a jumble right there of stuff, but uh, that, that's, uh, that, that's kind of what led me to the Phoenix. And now with the Phoenix, they got me my Olympic weightlifting. I'm a USAW Olympic weightlifting coach and I'm a CrossFit level one coach. And I'm also a Colorado peer and family specialist. It's like a step up recovery coach. Are you, Dan, are you lucky? Are you touched by God? Are you committed to the point that people can't ignore, ignore you and turn, your, turn you away? How did you end up where you are? Is this, is this discipline? 
Is this luck or is this God in your mind? In my mind, this is absolutely 100% God because my discipline at that point was non-existent. Uh, I don't know that I've ever really been a lucky person. And just with everything that's changed in what, how my mind has become, and like I started following a lot of like, I'm not a religious person at all. When you think of like, like, the, like I go to church and I have my, my, my prayer practices and I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't, I'm not a tradition following. I think that tradition kills the whole point of the spirituality. Like I think if you tell me if I have to do something, it's bad. And that's not the point that I believe. So I believe that, yeah, this was all God and me following that path has changed my mind. And like Romans 12 two says, like, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, you know, and like you'll be transformed. You know, and, uh, and I, I guess that's kind of what happened to me because like, honestly, and I don't know what clicked. Like, I mean, I guess I do. Yeah. It was when I was in jail reading that and that's when something clicked for me. And then just since then, like, like I said, now, like, like I do security at a bar at the bar that I used to sell drugs at, and I don't even think to drink. I don't have anything, nothing to do with it. It's like, it's, it's like the cravings have gone. When you have a young adult, male or female that you're working with, you're doing CrossFit with, you're throwing iron around the gym, and they can't grok the God piece, how do you connect with them? Man, the way I connect with them is I just am like, man, whatever works for you, you know, because like that's one thing that I do help do as a recovery coach is I'll sit down with them. And if they have a problem believing that, I'm not going to try to do anything that's going to push them away from something to get them to their recovery. So like I'll sit down. And I have like a lot of different resources. Like if they're like, like say like they're like really atheist, like, like I'll get them into like, I know the smart recovery meetings, like we'll get you in it. Let's find out what works for you to help you in your pathway of recovery. And like at the Phoenix, we support all those pathways. And I try to be really on the up with, with what's going on with those. So that way I can connect people to them. You've been with the Phoenix for how long now? Um, I started off as a team member in probably June or July, 2016. And uh, Todd, uh, my supervisor, he called me about a year and two months ago. And uh, he was like, Dan, what would it look like for you to come and work for us? And at first I thought about it. And I was like, I like kind of the treatment center was fun. But then I was like, if I get to go somewhere, like if I get to work at a gym and help people in recovery, those are like two of my passions. So like, I was like, all right, Todd, let's do it. And I started March 14th, uh, 2018. What's your five-year plan? What do you see yourself doing in five years? Oh, in five years, I'm actually I'm an entrepreneur. I see myself being at a point where I'm going to actually probably be financially independent uh, to the point where I will be able to make a huge impact on recovery. I still see myself absolutely, absolutely volunteering my time to, uh, to help people in recovery. And it's just the impact from, the, from that financial independence piece will be able to help me. To, like when we have our gala, like there's people that go and they donate. Like I'm going to be dropping big checks to help people in recovery. I, got, I have a lot of places that I want to support that help people in recovery. That, that's where I see myself in five years. I posed a question at the beginning of the show for families because it's parents who listen to this podcast. And like me, I know parents are going to be really like buzzed up by listening to the energy in your voice to understand that someone who had that level of craziness and insanity and self-deprecation and self-destruction in their life could end up working with a program and clean and sober and helping addicts in recovery and uh, just about to get off paper. I mean, that's amazing. But we're still dealing with parents who can't get their kid out of bed. Like, you know, the kid's like, I'm so depressed and they don't go to school and not going to school depresses them more and they don't see their friends and they say, I have no friends and that depresses them more. 
And the parents, you want to say to a kid who's dealing with depression, let's just go exercise. But that's not how depression works. So I, I need to know from you, you know, especially because you work with young adults. And I keep saying kid, but you know, you're a parent, you got this 21 year old sitting in the basement, and all they do is smoke pot all day long. And the parent looks at you and they listen to you and they know the Phoenix could help. What would you say to the parents to help them get that kid out of that basement and, and start this process? I'd say, if you can connect them to somebody that like that is like them that they that appeals to them if you can connect them to somebody and get them out of that isolation because i believe that people human beings are creatures are social creatures if you can get them to get them to break that isolation get them to go hang out maybe go have pizza with somebody like they like 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 I, this is something that i do with a lot of people it's like and like i even have a guy a kid that i'm working with well i'll show up at his house and just check on him you know and actually this is a conversation we had the other day is he was like dan i wake up depressed I want to use I was like you want me to come over there you want me to come and pick you up what's up you know and, and like I think that it like just find somebody if we could get somebody that like they can work with that has a similar you know history as them or somebody like that's been through it find somebody that's been through it and get them because there's a lot of people out there that want to help and a lot of people that have been through depression if you can get them to go just pick them up just grab them just be like come on we're going to go get pizza have a good talk with them and get them you can get them to a point like just get them to not isolate and then you can get them in the gym and and just get them working out because I'm telling you Aaron like picking up that barbell for the first time and actually like and going through like a like a clean and jerk progression and actually getting your first one it's powerful, man. Or like with the rock climbing, man, once you get to that four top of that 40 foot wall and you've never done that before and you look down and everybody's clapping, it's just like, man, I did it. <clears throat> it's, it's a powerful thing, you know, like, and that's, that, that helped me a lot. I, I see it work all the time. Just, I hope that kind of answers that. It does. And I, it, what I hear so much is that you got to take that, that pressure off the parents to be the one to get them out of the basement. The parents need to start to look out into the community, into resources and find someone like you, like the Phoenix, who's going to say, I'll show up yeah. and I'll be there. And, and, and it was, for me, the 12 steps didn't save my life. I know they're right. potent. They've saved millions of lives. But for me, it was the dude who said that I could call at three in the morning and said, I can't sleep. I want to use so badly. And he says, meet me at Perkins. And yes. we would, and he would be there. And if I said, well, I can't, I don't have a ride. He's like, I'm on my way. That's like, right. That's, and, that, and that is that eternal 12 step and being an eternal 12 stepper like you, it's damn fulfilling. So let's, let's talk about your eternal 12 step. Now you're with the Phoenix. Let these parents know we've been dropping that name back and forth. And I think parents are getting the idea. It has something to do with, with fitness, but you and I both know it's so much more than that. Talk about the Phoenix and the Phoenix program. Yeah, the Phoenix, it's like, it's a support thing. Like, like we have a huge support. We're in like 12 states. And it's like, when you come to a Phoenix event, it was like I'm saying, like, I was a little bit nervous and I just got out of prison walking in, but just the support from everybody was amazing. And like, so like what we do at the Phoenix is we provide a sober active community for people that struggle with substance use disorder. So like, like sober and active, like we get out and we do stuff. Like we have a Moab trip coming up. We get people involved and like, and whatever your pathway of recovery is, we support that. And like, we have like, like our like little like community standards, like our mission statement though, is 
from a peer-to-peer support model, we, we do that. We help people out. We have recovery coaches. And uh, we, we don't do anything really clinical, but we connect people with clinical. Like I go to treatment centers all the time and I talk to them and I actually get to go to the county jail again next week. The place that I hate most in the world, I get to go in there and hopefully be a ray of hope for some people. But yeah, so like what we do is like we provide sober active communities. We have like CrossFit on the West Coast. We have surfing. Uh, we do rock climbing, mountain biking, hikes. We have family stuff. We do brunches, cooking classes. We do spin classes. Uh, like and it's just, it's a lot of fun. So, so we get people involved with that. And like, like that's one thing I'll do. I'll advocate for people. Like if they've never been to an event, like I'll, I'll go pick them up. I'll take them to their first one. I'll try to get him to whatever, like whatever other pathway of recovery. Like I'll go to a, even though like, like I'll go to a refuge recovery meeting with you, but like we'll get him here. And like, I'll even do a one-on-one session. Like if you don't want to come to my CrossFit class, because I mean, some people might be intimidated by it. I'll get him in the gym and I'll do a one-on-one session with them. And I might, might do one or two of those. We'll talk about some stuff, just have like a little bro sesh. And, uh, and then, you know, like, get them and usually by that time they want to come in and get in the crossfit class or like if i start working with them and it's they don't like like the intensity of that they want to go rock climbing we'll go to rock climbing on sunday night so yeah like that's what we do is we we, in the support here is amazing when i first came in i met todd and kaylee first they were right up here they're just like man how you doing like it's it's very supportive and it's real it's real it's like there's nothing fake about it we all genuinely care and we want to help and and just i think that that's one big thing like when you actually see and feel that with me i I was like i almost trusted them right off the bat i was just like wow and uh then i got to hear some of their stories and everybody's got such different stories here and it's amazing so like we all can relate and like if i got somebody that i'm working with and i'm not relating to i'll get them with this person we'll sit down we'll have coffee we'll go out for pizza like we do fun stuff with that all the time. So two questions. Number one, uh, if, a, if a parent wants to get their, their kids involved in the Phoenix um, or if a, if a younger person who's listening wants to get involved in the Phoenix, how much does it cost? Oh, and all it costs is 48 hours sober. That's it. That's amazing. So there's not a cost attached to this at all. Not at all. And if somebody, and I'll even go as far as to work with some people, if they cannot get 48 hours sober, I'll go meet them somewhere and I will sit down and I'll bring every bullet I got for helping them. Everything I got in my case, like, like, what do we got to do? What's like, I look at like, what does it look like? And I help them identify like, what can we do to help you start getting sober? And I've had several people go into treatment facilities. I've had several people go, like I plug people into, into sober living all the time, you know, and, and like I go in and I talk to people's POs. It's like, if they're struggling, like, like I had one guy, I was like, okay, this is what we got to do. And he, like, I, he, it was a struggle for him. We went in together with his PO and talked to his PO and he got honest and was like, I'm still using actively. I need help. Got him into treatment. So like, I'll help you get to somewhere where you can get 48 hours. I'll do my best to help them. And if they can get that 48 hours, I'll be, I'll, I'll even go do the event with you. Like if, if it's not one of my events, my CrossFit events, I'll go and I'll do yoga with you. I'd love to. What are, what's the age requirement? For CrossFit, um, I can coach 16 and up, but then for our family events, like if you're coming to our rock climbing, like we have people that show up with their infants. Like you call, like we have, it's called TFR, Together Families Recover. We have TFR, we have like low intensity. We don't even call them a hike because it's like a low intensity nature walk. Like you go out and you bring the kids and you just walk around. And you, you get to help build the family dynamic back up. All right. So now parents are going to want to know how to contact you. What are some good contact information? Um, we got, um, I'll even give my cell phone number. You know what I'm saying? Like my cell phone number is 719-493-2045. Um, I recommend it. If somebody wants to get a hold of me, you can email me. It's D H U G I L L 
at thephoenix.org, dhugel at thephoenix.org. And also we can check out our website. It's thephoenix.org. You can help. It'll find a Phoenix near you or to get connected with somebody or even have people that like, like our program so much that they want to start one up wherever they're at. And we have a way, like a simple way to even start a Phoenix program chapter where you're at. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, Oh, the Facebook page, website, anything like that? Yeah, yeah, we can. You can look me up on Facebook. It's just Dan Hugel in Colorado Springs. Yeah, you can look me up, and we have we have the Phoenix, Colorado on Facebook. We have just the Phoenix. Yeah, we're we're all over Facebook. Fantastic, fantastic, Dan. Uh, thanks so much, man. Your energy is refreshing. I oh. j- it's 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 just a workout listening to you, man. Does that count? Can I write that down? Because I, I didn't make it to the gym today because of the rib <laughs> ribs. So can I just write it down that I talked with Dan today? Does that? You're amazing, man. I love your energy. It's 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 contagious. It's it's wicked, man. You got my heart. I, I'm burning calories just sitting here. <laughs> thanks, Aaron. Yeah, man. I'm glad this was our second talk. I'd like to have more and, uh, uh, you know, be, I'm coming down, down to, uh, Colorado Springs next weekend. Um, and despite the whole busted ribs thing, my wife and I are going to try to do the Manitou incline again, uh, made it to the top last time. I'd like to try to do it cause we're training for a uh, tough mutter awesome. coming up here in August. So uh, I'd like to be able to come down and see if possible. Yep. We're like, we're like a seven minute drive from the incline. Oh, that's perfect. That's yeah. perfect. All right, Dan from the Phoenix, uh, stay on the line for a second while I sign us out. But uh, thanks for your time here. I know parents are uh, appreciating you right now. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. So here's the thing, parents. When, when I do the mantra at the end of this, which if you've listened to any of our episodes, you know, take care of yourself first, take care of your adult relationship second, take care of your kids third, because in that way we do our best work with our kids. This fitness piece, one of the things that I know through the Phoenix and I, I don't know if Dan knows this, but back in the day when the Phoenix, when uh, Phoenix Multisport, when they started up in Boulder, Colorado, they were 18 and up only. But they would let us at Fire Mountain bring our boys in when we were a boys' home only, and we would go hang out. And it was, this was back at the beginning of it. And it was, it was amazing. And our boys would look forward to it every single week. And the moment there was a moment where one of our graduates, when he turned 18, he started hanging out with the with Phoenix Multisport. This kid, and this is going to tear me up a little bit, he's about to marry my daughter. He's going to become my son-in-law. And so it's not just that I know and like these guys and girls who are down there at the Phoenix. It's that the work, they, the work they've done is giving my daughter a husband. And that, that's huge. So I could not recommend these guys enough because I know they work. But it's also because I know that the work they do changes your brain chemistry. It changes what's going on inside of you. It doesn't just change what you're doing in a day. You're not just in the basement being depressed, smoking pot, playing video games. You're, you're out. Even if it's for an hour at a class with someone like Dan who's going to kick your ass. But it doesn't just change your day. It changes your mind. The dopamine starts to flow. The serotonin starts to get released. The environment changes. The neurological piece changes. Your life changes. And the Phoenix has, these these people have figured something out. So check out the Phoenix. Dan, thank you again for being on the show, man. I hope you know that, that my love for what you guys do, it's much deeper than just talking with you guys. You, you guys help get my daughter a husband. And that that means a lot to me. Awesome. Aaron, thank you so much for having me, brother. 
Yeah, man. All right, folks. So when I say you take care of yourself, you get your butt to the gym, you get your butt outside and take the dogs for a walk, quit letting them outside in the backyard, take them out front and walk that neighborhood, get out into nature, sniff the trees, look at the space between the leaves. And when I say take care of your adult relationships, that means do it together, hold hands, find your friends, find your parenting partners, repair that stuff. Because when we do that, when we take care of our bodies, when we take care of our adult relationships, it's not that we can tell our kids how to do it. It's not that we can handle what our kids are doing better. It's that our kids watch us change our lives, minds, and bodies. That's how we take care of our kids in the best way. I want to thank Daniel Cropper, my editor, and I want to thank the boss goddess, Kristen Walker at Beyond, uh, Beyond Risk and Back, Mental Health News Radio Network. She is the queen bee out there taking care of all of us podcasters, trying to help families, parents, teachers, and clinicians. And uh, folks, if you wonder if your kid needs residential treatment, my facility, Fire Mountain at firemountainprograms.com. Do the online free assessment or call our admissions office at 303-443-3343 and see if we are the ones. And if not, we'll tell you. I, I, would, I, I want to support every parent out there who's struggling with their teen or has a teen who struggles. Go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com and check out the roundtable talks. Uh, these are the mental health experts in the industry getting together and putting down some live video with some live stuff for families to be using and check out that content. Folks, thanks for joining me. Thanks for making Beyond Risk and Back the number one parenting podcast in Colorado and in Australia. Thanks, you Aussies. I don't know why I'm out there so big, but I love you guys. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next week, folks, on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility. And also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.